Anthony, I, I, I wanted to get you on the call today, one, because out of all the people who have written about SAS, uh, when I read what you've wrote about him, you seem to really understand what he was saying. And, you know, that's kind of unusual when you come across writings on SAS is that people often don't quite even, they can't quite wrap their minds around what he's trying to say. And I also know that you had a personal relationship with him. And, uh, but before we get into his ideas, I'd like to know what first got you interested in psychology and psychotherapy? Uh, when I was uh, 15, 15, I think it was, um, 15 or probably more like 16. When, when I was 16, I started, no, this isn't, this isn't right. Um, I mean, I was interested in psychology long before that. I mean, I, I read Jane Austen, I read Shakespeare um, when I was 13. Um, I'd read books as long as I could remember you know, from whenever I could read. So, of course, I was interested in people and in psychology um, and how people related. Uh, there were various lies um, told in my family about my own origins and parentage. And um, I, I devoted some time to, to working out these lies. And then, uh, because recognizing that they were lies was rather painful, because they were coming from people whom I loved and whom I thought who, who I thought loved me, um, I had to disguise from myself that I realized that they were lies and that I actually knew more or less what the truth was. So this was really quite a complicated operation I had to perform. It, um, it's the sort of operation that precisely somebody like Thomas Saz, but also Jean-Paul Sartre, um, would understand um, because it's uh, it's perfectly described by um, Sartre in his concept of mauvaise foi, bad faith, um, and of course Saz also understands it when he is trying to explain um, so-called mental illness, which uh, he doesn't use the Sartrean term mauvaise foi, but it is pretty much his thinking is pretty much equivalent. And he was a great admirer of Saz, of um, Sartre, even though Sartre was politically at the opposite extreme, pretty much um, to Saz. Saz was pretty contemptuous of Sartre's um, communism, his Maoism, um, uh, his personal life the lies that Sartre himself told. But nevertheless, uh, Saz had a great respect for Sartre's refusal to accept the Nobel Prize um, on principle. Uh, he, he thought that Sartre's book, um, Saint-Gené, uh, which at the time of writing was probably the most comprehensive attempt by one man to understand another man in the whole of literature. Um, uh, Saz called that a magnificent book. Um, uh, 
so, so in my in my own personal life, I for my very survival, I had to be interested in so-called psychology, and uh, and as I say, I I, I um, investigated my own life, and I invest I investigated through the medium of literature and plays, um, and then when I was sixteen, I um, I got on to James Joyce and I got on to Freud. I, I started, I, I bought Freud's interpretation of dreams and I found this fascinating, but I also became morally corrupted by it because um, Freud has this peculiar, um, this peculiar pseudo-scientific, pseudo-natural scientific approach in which he tries to reduce everything to natural science, and in particular to his own so-called meta-psychology. He tries to um, reduce moral positions, moral thinking, to some sort of rather nasty um, psychological um, thinking which lies behind it. So if, to take one example, um, uh, when Leonardo da Vinci um, has compassion for caged birds, and he he would buy them, and then he would release he would buy them in a cage, and then he would release the birds. And um, far from admiring this, Freud um, analyzes this as a sort of rather contemptible um, streak of um, uh, sort of feminine weakness, and. Um, Pacifism, pacifism was supposed to be um, a reaction formation against um, repressed sadism. And this was relevant in my case because, I mean, when I was a teenager, this was the time of, uh, this was after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and it was the beginning of the arms race between um, the West and the Soviet Union. And we really, we really believed that it was highly likely that there would be a thermonuclear war in the very near future. Um, this was, this was no fantasy. This was what most um, intelligent people thought was quite probable. Um, I was against um, Britain, for example, getting a, <clears throat> a nuclear deterrent, and I, I even went to jail um, uh, because of protesting about this. And squatting with some colleagues on a rocket site in Norfolk in England. Um, but all the time I was in jail, I was in anguish because um, I had, um, I was doubting what I was doing because I, I thought that maybe Freud was right and that my pacifist inclinations were merely a reaction formation against um, repressed sadism. So I was really quite confused. Um, but uh, I, I would argue that uh, it was an intelligent, in a sense, it was totally stupid. But in, in another sense, um, it, it meant I was taking Freud seriously. I thought Freud was a great scientist of the mind, just as Einstein was a great scientist of the natural world. And if Freud said something was so, it was likely to be true. Um, it was another couple of years before I began to really see through what nonsense this was. Um, now, um, I sought psychotherapy for myself. I, ever since reading The Interpretation of Dreams, I had thought it would be interesting um, to have personal 
um, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis. And I, I was lucky enough to be able to get it when I was 22. But uh, I, I didn't realize what a danger, what, uh, what a swamp I was actually entering. But through great good luck, I the analyst I found was one of the two um, analysts in Britain who called themselves existential um, analysts. This was Ling and Esterson. My, my analyst was Esterson. And I mean, he very quickly pointed out to me what <laughs> what what's you know what nonsense this um, this idea of pacifism being a reaction against repressed sadism was, um, and I mean he, he says obviously it could be, but it, it, it didn't have to be, and um, uh, now a, a couple of. A couple of years, no, about one year, one year into my um, analysis with Esterson, I would have been 23. I had been reading, I mean, I, I mentioned that I'd read Freud at the age of 16. Um, I'd also read some Jung. Uh, after I started going to Esterson and learned that he um, and Laying were existential analysts, I started studying the existential literature. And um, this was 1962. And in 1958, well, Laying had, had written his two books, The Divided Self and The Self and Others. They were published in six, 1960 and 1961. Um, in 19, 1958, a big book called Existence, edited by Rollo May, Henri Ellenberger, and um, Ernest Angel had been published, which had a number of important um, European uh, existential and phenomenological writings in it. This was the real um, sort of breakthrough of so-called existential thinking in America and to some extent in England. I got this book. And um, the, the sort of showpiece of this book was a case history by the um, Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, friend of Freud, uh, Ludwig Binswanger. And it, uh, this book contained two of his case histories, um, a, a short one called The Case of Ilsa, and a very long and um, pretentious and complicated one, a famous one called The Case of Ellen West. And I read the case of Ellen West, and I was puzzled by it because uh, I was reading this simultaneously with um, uh, Sartre, and Sartre is all about human freedom, about um, personal choice. Um, uh, there's no such thing as a mental mechanism. Um, uh, I mean, f as Ling said, there may be phenomenologically um, something which feels like a mental mechanism, but this is simply because the person has allowed himself to experience himself in a mechanical way. Um, and so when the therapist shouldn't stop there, but should um, try to question uh, why why the person has come to experience himself in such a bizarre way um, as to have 
mental mechanisms. Uh, the, the point is that he should become um, not a patient um, with, with a mechanism, but a, an agent who is um, who, who, who is doing pirouettes and complicated maneuvers with his mind in the way that Sartre describes and um, and calls bad faith, mauvaise foi. Um, so I found Binswanger's case of Ellen West puzzling because although it has very high-flown Heideggerian terminology, um, which uh, to this day seems to bedazzle people, so that they they think something very profound is being argued here. Um, I found it puzzling because um, it seemed to imply a sort of determinism, uh, which was exactly the opposite of what I had been reading in Sartre. And it was also the opposite of the way that Esterson, um, my own analyst, approached things. I mean, he held me responsible for everything that um, uh, that I did and for everything that I tried to disclaim responsibility for. Um, this was very um, demanding, but also very refreshing and demystifying. Um, now, in about, uh, I, I would guess this was about May 1963, I was in the basement of a bookshop in the Charing Cross Road. Charing Cross Road in London is, is, a, is a road full of second-hand bookshops. And I was in the basement of one of them, very dark. And I, I came across a book called The Myth of, Myth of Mental Illness by Thomas Sass. And I pulled this book out and um, I was rather pleasantly surprised that he seemed to be um, uh, basing himself on the sort of philosophy that I had read um, before I got involved with this existential stuff. I was interested in mathematics and logic and um, Russell and Wittgenstein and uh, philosophy of mathematics and so on. And um, Saz seemed to come from this tradition. He referred to these philosophers. Um, and I was quite startled that he was actually arguing that um, a number of the cases which I had read in Freud and so on were not really cases of mental illness at all, um, that, that they were to be understood as, he, he didn't use this language, but in Sartre's language, it would be praxis or uh, human action, the actions, actions on one's own consciousness. Um, and this, this was very, um, it was re revelatory. Um, uh, and I felt a bit scared of it. And I, I wondered whether it was being too glib, too clever. Um, I didn't actually buy the book. I mean, I was fairly short of money at that time. Um, but I stood there, I, I would say, for a long time, I, I don't know, it could have been a matter of hours, pretty much read the book through and was fascinated by it. And I, and I felt that I'm going to have to choose between this way of thinking and Binswanger's way of thinking in the case of Ellen West. 
um, which was a bit daunting because I, I, I thought I had sort of adopted the, the existential way of thinking. But in fact, I was finding really quite significant contradictions between Binswanger and Sartre. And now, um, very, very much the same thing, if not more so, between um, um, Binswanger and Sass. Then, um, then I went away, and uh, this this book that I'd read in the basement of the shop kind of stayed in the basement of my mind, as it were, for um, perhaps nine months. And then two books by R.D. Laying and my own analyst, Aaron Esterson, came out. The first was called Reason and Violence, um, a Decade of Sartre's Philosophy. And the second one, a month later, was called Sanity, Madness and the Family, Families of Schizophrenics. And this was by Laying and... Uh, sorry, the first one was by Laying and Cooper, and the second one was by Laying and Esterson. Um, and both of these books uh, were, I found, very uh, striking and very demystifying. The, the Sartre one continued with the sort of liberatory process that I'd um, been embarked upon through reading Sartre's Being and Nothingness, um, because Sartre's continuing the idea of individual personal freedom. Uh, the, uh, he now called it praxis, uh, which he distinguished from process. So that um, then Laying and Esterson tried to apply this language to their study of the family. So that they looked at um, things which psychiatrists thought of as process, you know, things just sort of happening, just kind of natural events. Um, so that if one, if one young woman in a family became diagnosed as schizophrenic, this was thought of as a, a, a sort of an event within nature, um, you know, rather as if she had got um, COVID, you know, got, got the virus, or if, as if she'd got cancer or something like this, um, a kind of natural process. But Ling and Esterson wanted to demystify this and try to understand what was going on by looking at the whole family and seeing it as a sort of complex web of people's praxis, the, the actual individual personal free choices that all the people in the family were making, um, and uh, with conflicts which, which they found convenient to reach a pseudo-solution to by um, identifying one person in the family. In, in, this, in the case of the book, it was always um, a, a daughter, uh, an adolescent or young woman daughter to identify her as ill and then call in the doctors who rubber stamped this idea that they were ill and then um, put the diagnosis of schizophrenia upon them. Um, this, is, uh, this I still think 60 years later um, is one of the greatest um, books of the 20th century, um, certainly in the field of psychiatry or though I mean of course it's not it's not in the field of psychiatry it's it's seeing through the field of psychiatry it's blowing it uh, blowing it up as um, Tom Saz said that he would like to do I mean Saz once 
he gave a seminar for me and he said that his ambition was to be a terrorist, blowing up the whole um, field of psychiatry. Uh, and I, I, I don't know whether he um, ever put that in print and whether he would have been happy for me to be repeating it now, but he, that's certainly what he said then. That was uh, either 1903 or, nine, sorry, 2003 or 2007. When, when he gave wonderful seminars for me. Um, so, well, I, uh, your question was, how did I get into this field? So I've described, I've, I've described, I started from my own um, questions about my own life and family relationships, and then started reading the literature. And to my great good fortune, um, quite early on in my um, investigations. Uh, well, not after a few years of confusion, having been corrupted by Freud, but then I, I had the great good fortune to um, to encounter Sartre and Saz and Laying and Esterson, great demystifiers. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I really appreciate it. You walking me through that whole story. Um, I, I had a similar experience when I first uh, picked up Sauce and started reading him. I kind of, I, I couldn't quite make heads or tails of what he was saying because I was so still in the mindset uh, of the that man is a, a natural being and and the, these things called mental illnesses are happenings, not things that that people do. They're just they happen like like cancer or COVID or something like that. But the more I kept coming back to him the more I just kept thinking that he's making so much sense. It just, I, and then, and then I just devoured book after book of his and it, it's, uh, yeah, he is, he's an intellectual terrorist, I guess would be the best way to describe it. He kind of blows up things in your mind that you had previously taken for granted. But, uh, you know, the, at what point did you actually meet him? Uh, and become, you know, acquaintances with him? Uh, the first time I saw him in the flesh, uh, we didn't speak. Um, uh, he, he, I mean, I, I saw him. Uh, he probably just caught a microsecond's glimpse of me. Um, that was in 1977. He was talking. He was actually talking at um, giving a lecture under the auspices of the Scientologists, which of course is, uh, has led to a lot of nonsense about him. People alleging that he was a Scientologist or, or agreed with their philosophy or something. Of course he didn't. Um, I mean, I'm sure he thought it was a lot of nonsense. He, he, he just said he would, he, would have taken, he, he would have taken money from anyone, even psychiatrists. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and in fact, he did take money from psychiatrists. And he said nobody, nobody ever criticized him for taking money from psychiatrists. But uh, he thought they were, <laughs> they, they were far worse people to take money from than Scientologists were. Um, and anyway, he, he was giving this lecture, um, which was a very impressive uh, lecture and discussion. Uh, uh, I mean, since I've mentioned it, I may as well mention one thing that impressed me the most, I think, in that um, lecture. Um, there was a well-known British psychiatrist called Anthony Clare who used to do a, 
program on the BBC on the radio. Um, I don't I don't think he ever did it on television. It was on the radio, and, and he, it was called In the Psychiatrist's Chair. And he anyway, Claire was one of the people on this panel. Um, another of the people was Hans Keller, a famous music critic. Um, who also rather fancied himself as a psychoanalyst. Now, he became a friend of Saz. Um, anyway, um, Anthony Clare um, said uh, in, in a rather sort of um, injured voice to Saz, he said, um, he said, sort of what troubles me about you, Professor Saz, is that um, you, you always... Uh, you 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 don't seem to take account of the fact that there may be another view on the matter, and so Saz said something like this: "Says I, I'm very grateful to um, Dr. Clare for uh, for making this very important point of view, because it is indeed the case that on every question that we have considered today, or or are likely to consider, that there are certainly two views." on the matter, and that is why I am giving you one of you, mine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I loved that. <laughs> yeah, um, he's a very witty and funny man, from what I can tell. Yes, he was extremely humorous. Uh, I mean, he, he was, uh, I mean, by heredity or whatever, he was bound to be doubly humorous. He was he was Hungarian and he was Jewish, so uh, that implies kind of two helpings of humor. Um, he, anyway, that's the first place um, I saw him, yeah. but I didn't talk to him. Um, oh, uh, I, uh, the first time I spoke to him was by telephone. I phoned him up, actually. Um, I, I think he was just freely available in, in the phone telephone directory for... Um, Syracuse, Mandius, and I just phoned him up um, because I was doing some research. Um, I, I've investigated various paradigmatic case studies of starting with Freud and then going on to other people, including Binswanger, the, the psychiatrist I mentioned. Um, I, I actually investigated historically that 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 dreadful case of Ellen West, um, but at the time I rang. Thomas Saz, um, I had been researching um, Freud's famous Dora case and also his Katerina case, and I was wondering where I could um, get a grant to support my research. <clears throat> and I, I phoned him up to ask him about it, and he said he'd got no idea, but he thought he could get me a large advance um, if I would write a couple of chapters of a book. Um, well, I'm, I'm very bad at writing books and uh, um, I'm better at doing seminars and so I, I, I never did this but, but but anyway that was the beginning of our relationship um, and then over the years I had one or two exchanges by letter with him uh, I finally met him I think it was the early 90s um, we met we met at conferences in London. Um, uh, 
Yeah, and, and we, we, we corresponded by email um, towards the end of the 90s. I mean, I didn't get a computer till near the end of the 90s. But then we started corresponding by email, and it, our emails became uh, more and more frequent. In the year 2000, um, I was invited to go to Syracuse um, for his 80th birthday conference, and I delivered a paper there. Um, and again, got, got to know him a bit better, then got to know him better still as we continued to correspond. Um, then in 2000 and, uh, 2002, there, there were some um, what I thought were rather stupid attacks on him in a journal, Existential Analysis, in, um, in London. And I I wrote a fairly detailed rebuttal or re reply to the to these criticisms, um, and um, is that the unreliable reader? Is that the title of that article? No, that's a later one. No, no, that one was called uh, what was it called? It was called um, a poor model for students in a, a poor model for those in training or something like that. The case, the, the subtitle was the important thing. The case of Thomas Sars. You know, I mean, the, the, they they were talking about him as if he was a sort of, you know, a, a madman, a, a, a case. And so I, I that that was, you know, that that was what I published. I think it was two thousand and three, and. Um, I mean, but by this time, I, Tom and I had been corresponding quite a bit. Uh, so yeah, yes, yes. I'm sorry, um, I, I I can't quite remember the the sequence of all this, but um, I I had by this time I had been all, all, I was already doing my inner circle seminars, which I started in 1996. These are seminars. Um, uh, some of them I conduct, and some of them I invite world experts on various subjects. But but they're all to do with the demystifying of psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, psychiatry, and so on, and the foundations, the historical and philosophical foundations of psychotherapy, and um, uh, and sort of demystifying mental illness, so-called mental illness, and and so on. So they're very much in tune with SAS. And he he liked he liked the sound of my seminars, and he agreed to do um, a, a seminar for me in the uh, I think the first one he did was December two thousand and three, something like that. But around about that time, um, uh, I, I actually got a an award called the SAS Award, which was given not by him but by um, an institute, I think it's called the Institute for Independent Thought or something like that um, in the States, uh, a, a number of people. It was called the, the Thomas Sass, um Award for Contributions to Civil Liberties. And, and, and because some of my writing and my seminars and so on were um, uh, were in defense of civil liberties because they, they were demystifying psychiatry. Um, um, I, I was given this award, and so I met him again then, 
but I mean, by then I'd, I'd already met him a, a number of times and we were already friends. Uh, but I, I would say it's it's from, from, from about the year 2000, really. Um, from Probably from the time I went for his 80th birthday um, conference and celebration, um, I, I, our relationship grew, grew much deeper. And I mean, I, I came to think of him as really my best friend. Um, uh, in fact, I, I mean, I, I'd never had a man friend um, uh, who was with whom I was as close as I was with Tom Saz. Uh, and um, he seemed to respect me because I didn't want to be um, uh, a Sazian or disciple. You know, I, I mean, I, I was... Uh, I was who I was in my own right, and we, and and I, we would argue about a lot of things. I mean, and I, I, there were things I, I didn't agree with him about on the fundam on the fundamental issues of um, uh, of sort of radical radical faith in freedom, as he put it. Well, the great title of one of his books is Faith in Freedom. That was something that we shared, this absolute um, holding holding oneself and other people responsible for what they did. That, that was something that absolutely united us. Um, another thing that, um, that we were close on may sound rather strange and um, other people who were his friends seem to find it rather incomprehensible and that is um, he had a, a he was an he called himself an out and out atheist but he had a deep respect for certain sorts of religion that he respected and he respected um, the way that my wife and I were um, serious about Judaism. Well, well, I mean, we were serious about many religions, but we actually practiced Judaism. Um, I mean, without um, um, without regarding it as as the only the only possible um, sort of mythology, as it were, that one um, one could commit to. There, there, there are many there are many ways, um, but this was one. And he respected this, um, and we talked about this. And he re- had written a book, The Myth of Psychotherapy. Yes. In which, and in this book, um, he... Uh, I mean, the heart of that book is his argument that psychotherapy, so-called, is not a medical discipline at all. It's basically a kind of... It, it's It's essentially a religious discipline but not in the uh, not in the sense of um, uh, being in the service of any particular religion it, but the, the sort of heart of it he thought was was he liked the phrase the cure of souls um, I mean, he compared it to he, he compared what he was doing to what Luther had done, um, and uh, and for the first time he showed some sympathy with Jung. He he um, he said I can't remember whether he actually said it in the book, but he certainly said it somewhere that he hadn't 
appreciated previously the importance of Jung or just what the split between Freud and Jung had really been about. He he had previously um, accepted the conventional account, which was that Freud and Jung split because um, of differences about the, the, the significance of sex in childhood, something like that. But um, says says that he came to think that the real difference was that Jung saw psychotherapy as a kind of religious enterprise, um, and that this was the real difference. But, I, I mean, paradoxically, Freud himself came to see it that way. Um, but again, I mean, uh, this word religious can be very confusing, um, but... Um, Spiritual. I don't much like the word spiritual, um, but but it's Freud wrote a whole book, the question of lay analysis, defending Theodor Reich, um, a non-medical analyst who was being accused of quackery in a trial in America, and uh, <clears throat> so Freud wrote this book in defence of lay analysis arguing that psychoanalysis was not anything medical um, and that a, a proper institute of, uh, for training psychoanalysts would, um, uh, wouldn't be a medical institute. It, it would um, teach anthropology and mythology and religion and um, history and art and so on. Um, and one could become uh, a psychoanalyst I think his position was basically that to become a psychoanalyst, one should have done an honest job, an honest trade first. One should have made out, as it were, under fire in the incredibly complex society that we live in. One should one should be a man of the world, you know, not a Luftmensch. Um, one should know the society in which one lives, um, have made out in it, and uh, and then become um do training as as a, a therapist and the the sort of honest trade um could be that you had the first honest trade could be medicine but that's only one of many you know i, th I think freud would probably think you could have been a carpenter or a gardener um or a historian or a school teacher um he did say he didn't think that uh, he, on one occasion he specified that the uh, a psychoanalyst need not be a doctor, but should not be a priest. <laughs> he, so he, he, he actually didn't, even though he was arguing it was a kind of religious enterprise, he didn't want paid up priests um, to, to be analysts. Um, one of my students once wrote a, a, a dissertation arguing against that because he himself was a priest who was also a psychotherapist and he argued that it was quite possible and I have had a number of rabbis actually um, coming to train as psychotherapists with me um, but it, it can create it can create difficulties if, if people are um, married as it were to a, a certain sort of orthodoxy a certain sort of ideology as opposed to the sort of general religious um feeling that Saz had in mind um 
but uh, but it, it was uh, but this was one of the strong things that um, he and I agreed about, uh, and which some of the other uh, devotees of says found a bit difficult to believe. Even um, for example, um, uh, a number of them argued with me that says always said that people should always pay for psychotherapy. Um, it should be a, a, an honest contract, um, you know, openly stated. It, it, it should be a contract for money. Um, well, as a matter of fact, he didn't. He, um, he, early on he did in, for example, his book, um, The Ethics of Psychoanalysis, which is an excellent book, um, though, the it, its subtitle is um, the the method of autonomous psychotherapy, if I've remembered it rightly. Anyway, it's certainly I think that is right. It's, yeah. it's the, the ethics of psychoanalysis colon the method of um, autonomous psychotherapy, and then uh, for the Syracuse edition of it, decades later, he writes a new introduction or new preface. And in it, he says, um, he, he says that there, uh, it says, of course, there, there can be no such thing as a, a, a so-called method of psychotherapy. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I don't know whether he notices that he's contradicting his own subtitle, <laughs> but um, yeah. um, anyway, I mean, both both of these both of these are sort of valid. You know, I mean, he is he is giving he's sort of giving you a method, but he's also saying you know there can be no method i mean you you have the the reader has to sort of reconcile this contradiction as best he can obviously if you follow if you follow a sort of um technique um you try to copy that then you're not going to be any good at all but, but, but if you take method in the original greek sense of meaning sort of along the way or something he's 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 kind of he's just um pointing in a sort of pointing a way that you have to work out for yourself. You have to take the way yourself. And um, it, it's a very good book. Um, but in that book, he has not yet got to where he had got to in um, the, the myth of psychotherapy the following decade. Um, and, of course, in the myth of psychotherapy, he argues that... Um, he, he, he argues that... He argues against psychotherapy, I mean, most ferociously uh, against the idea of psychotherapy in the medicalized form that it has taken, this, this corrupt, decadent, um, pseudo-medical form that it's taken, in which therapy is understood to mean um, a mental treatment, uh, medical treatment, and psyche is taken to mean some sort of object called the mind. And of course, Saz was absolutely dead against psychotherapy in that sense. Um, and I mean, there's one sort of so-called Sazian um, um, elder who, who, who writes to me complaining every time I use the word psychotherapy because he says, you know, Tom always explained to me that there was no such thing as psychotherapy because therapy meant something medical. But the fact is that Saz was 
more complex than that. And he did use the term psychotherapy um, when he chose to, um, understanding it in a totally non-medical sense. And that's how I use it. I use it to mean um, therapy in Greek means a certain way, certain way of attending. And psyche means um, the soul. So I, I'm, I'm, I've got no objection to calling what I'm doing attending on the soul of the people who come to me. And of course, soul doesn't mean um, what, what, what it has come to mean, some sort of disembodied entity. Soul, or psyche, according to Aristotle, means um, something like the ground and manner of one's relationship to all that is. So I've got no objection to, to saying that I work on at, at attending to the ground and relationship of somebody's relation to all that is. That, uh, that's what I mean by psychotherapy, and that's what Tom meant by psychotherapy. And he was quite happy to use the term uh, sometimes, so that, for example, um, at a seminar in 2007, um, uh, somebody asked him right at the beginning, um, Professor says, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're very much against psychiatry, um, but I have the impression that you think that psychotherapy can be something worthwhile. And Tom said, oh, yes, psychotherapy. I, I think psychotherapy is one of the most worthwhile things in the world. Now, there's any number, there's any number of people um, who, if, if I didn't have, if I didn't have that um, on a recording, would simply say that I was lying or deluded, because they are convinced that Saz was, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned at the outset that people have got, you know, wrong ideas about Saz. Well, one of the wrong ideas, which I've seen in print innumerable times, is that he was against psychotherapy, he, that he wanted to abolish it. Well, I mean, there, there was one person who wrote a book in the 1980s, that was Jeffrey Musayef Mason. He wrote the book Against Therapy, and he actually ended up saying that we could look forward to the day when psychotherapy would be abolished. Um, and I, um, I, met him, I, I, I had met him before he'd written this book. Um, uh, we, we, were, we were both speaking at a conference somewhere, and um, I'd become quite friendly with him. And uh, so I, I, at another conference, he was talking, and... Um, uh, yeah, um, I, I was in the audience and I asked him a question there and so he recognised me and then sort of beckoned me to come up and sort of sit with him, uh, you know, on the platform so we could carry on talking there. And um, I, I, I then put it to him. Uh, you, you said at the end of your book Against Therapy that we could look forward to the abolition of psychotherapy. And I said, um, I'm actually a friend of the man who is the chairman of the um, psychoanalysts of what was Czechoslovakia in the Stalinist time. And he vividly described to me the experience of doing psychoanalysis um, under that under Stalinism, in which neither the analyst nor the analysand knew whether the other person was a secret policeman. And so, so was Mason um, hoping for the 
you know, to make psychotherapy illegal and uh, to, to ban and abolish psychoanalysis. I, I, and I, and I, I used Sass as an example then. I said, when Thomas Sass says that he wants to abolish um, involuntary psychiatry um, and the insanity defense, he means exactly what he says. He, he, he wants to pass a law making, making involuntary psychiatry illegal. And, and, and this is a quite practicable um, project, you know, just like making slavery illegal. And in fact, Saz explicitly compares his proposal to make involuntary psychiatry illegal. He compares it explicitly to the successful legal abolition of slavery. Um, and so, so what, what do you actually mean when you talk about the abolition of psychotherapy? And all Mason could do would just sort of waffle and say, well, no, well, no. Um, uh, he, he just hoped it would sort of fade away or something like that. So it, it was really just waffle. Um, but th th there are plenty of people, plenty of people write books and just casually say that Saz wants to abolish psychotherapy. What's well, nonsense? Um, Saz spoke to me um, many times about psychotherapy in a very intimate kind of way. And in, in, as a matter of fact, he, he, he actually said I was the only person that he could talk to about psychotherapy. Um, and it had something to do with this um, uh, this sort of deep, deep religious sense I can only describe it as that he had about it, even even while being a, uh, an out and out atheist, as he quite rightly said, um, he nevertheless um, he, he he had a sort of awe, um, you know, a kind of divine awe for um, the possibilities of psychotherapy. He thought this was a wonderful thing that Freud had. Invented. He, I mean, I mean, he was full of um, contempt for Freud's pseudoscientific theories, but he thought it was a wonderful thing that Freud had um, pioneered the possibility of two people getting together so that one could simply attend to the soul or the the the, the urge to repentance of the other. And, and Sartre, uh, not Sartre, Saz, Saz talked quite explicitly about psychotherapy. As um, like like the cure of souls, um, uh, giving people a possibility for repentance. I mean, you you won't hear that from many of the Sazians. I mean, th this this is one way in which um, I don't agree with a, a lot of what is written, even by people who claim to be close to Saz and um, to, to know what he's thinking. Um, uh, uh, this this idea of repentance, for example, it's all there in black and white in in the book, um, the myth of psychotherapy. Um, so so Saz also talked talked to in in these kind of religious terms. I, I once said to him that I found his atheism deeply religious, and he said, <laughs> and and he and and he said yes. He said in, in all seriousness, he, he said yes. That, uh, that that's how I think of it too. <laughs> and, and, yeah. Yeah, oh yes, and I, I didn't finish. I didn't finish what I was saying about um, how, how people just uh, take for granted that he was, um, you know, he thought you should only do psychotherapy for money. I mean, this is this is one of the things that, of course, 
uh, people are very indignant about. You know, they, they think he's walking away from all these poor, starving people, the rejects of society. He only wants to work with rich people who are going to pay him. I mean, this is one of the libels against him by people who simply don't don't read what he wrote and don't, don't know how he thought. Um, of course, he he wrote again and again, and particularly in the ethics of psychoanalysis. Um, if you are doing psychotherapy, um, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, in private practice, um, th then of course uh, you're going to charge. Um, and I mean, and, and unless you're a philanthropist who's going to do it all for nothing, but um, you're, you're going to be, you're going to charge, and then says says just how important it is to keep the contract and to be quite clear what it is you're selling, and and he argued that um, all the talk about the power of the therapist, you know, the power relation, he thought all of that was nonsense. He thought all the all the power was with the client. He said the, the the client is hiring you and he can sack you. So who's got the power? It's the client. You've 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 got to <laughs> you've got to prove that you're worth your keep. Simple as that. He he, right. he, he, he wouldn't accept any of this um, the the usual kind of power dynamics that people talk about. Um, and so, so, so he certainly said that that you that if you've got a contract, then you honor it, and and you and you insist on the patient honoring it. So you don't allow him to run up a big bill. You know, if he, if he, if he doesn't pay, or she doesn't pay, then you say well, sorry. You know, I'll wait until you've got enough money to pay again. Um, and for example, he was deeply critical of Freud, who had a patient, um, a woman patient whose husband was being dilatory in sending her money out of which she would pay Freud. And um, so Freud sort of magnanimously says that he will lend the woman some money so that she can get by until her husband pays up. And Saz is extremely critical of Freud for this and says that it's, it's morally exactly equivalent to um, uh, the man withholding his sexual services from his wife and Freud offering his sexual services um, <laughs> for the husband's sexual services until the husband decides he wants to resume. <laughs> and um, I, I, so Saz was absolutely clear about this sort of thing, you know, about um, collusion and um, games playing uh, he wanted no nonsense, absolute clarity, absolute straightforwardness about who was responsible for what, who was selling what, and so on. But that's not the end of it. Bec and this is where people find it very difficult to believe me. But I've got it, I've got it in writing, uh, <laughs> printed in emails, and I've also got it uh, on sound recording. Uh, he thought. He, he, he actually wrote to me, um, since what we're doing in psychotherapy is really being simply human, um, you know, isn't, there, isn't there something wrong about making a profession of it? And he, then he said, well, he said, actually, it's a pseudo problem. Our forefathers 
solved it, the way they solved it was that, first of all, you had an honest trade. You know, you, you were a teacher, you were a tailor, basket maker, something like that. That's how you made your living. And then in your spare time, you were a rabbi. Mm. That's what he said. And and he, he that was that was actually his ideal for psychotherapy, that you shouldn't be paid for it, <laughs> that, that it should be um, a, a kind of ordinary human kindness, as it were, that you did in your spare time. You know, the, I mean, the, the first rabbis and priests were not paid. They were not um, paid professionals, they, although they, they might be, they might be, they came to be supported by their communities, but uh, not always. I mean, they, they, they could just be um, basket makers or whatever. And, and then they did a bit of um, spiritual counseling in their spare time. And of course, Freud uh, uh, has liked very much the uh, Freud's uh, description of what psychoanalysis was in the um, the question of lay analysis, because Freud said that a psychoanalysis is is nothing medical; it's weltliche Seelsorge, which means worldly care of the soul. That's I mean, that's almost identical to Sazi's idea of the cure of souls, but without the sort of religious ideology, Sec secular pastoral counseling. So Freud and Saz are at one in that. The only difference is that Freud uh, was inconsistent and he would, he would slip back into medicalizing and uh, sort of trying to turn it all into natural science and so on. But but uh, but uh, but Freud was quite fierce about the idea that um, psychoanalysis was, was not a medical discipline. Uh, this was an, another thing that confirmed him in the idea that America was a gigantic mistake, um, because the American psychoanalysts insisted that their members should all be doctors. And Freud thought this was completely decadent and completely wrong, that they had completely missed the point, which was that psychoanalysis was non-medical. So, so in that respect, Freud, Freud you could say, was a, a Sazian. <laughs> I, I think that Saz in, in the mis, myth of psychotherapy pointed out a few times where Freud went back and forth on that. When it, when it suited his needs, for example, uh, you know, training his daughter. Uh, of course, uh, it wasn't a medical issue. Uh, but then, in, in other circumstances, he he has quotes from Freud saying, "Oh, of course, it's a medical issue." So, do, do you also see that he went back and forth on that? Uh, that, that that's absolutely right. Freud Freud was uh, Freud was a great one for having his cake and eating it, and so was Jung. Jung was also contradictory in this respect. You know, both both of them will will. Uh, sort of unblushingly talk about the analyst as the doctor yeah, uh, and the patient, but then on on other occasions they they will say, you know, the analyst doesn't have to be a doctor. But yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, yeah. I, I was just going to say. Um, uh, so, so I mean, this this is. Um, so, so really, what I've been telling you about is. Um, uh, is Sazi's philosophy of um, 
of of mental illness, uh, which also, of course, implies that he didn't believe in mental health. Um, I'll come back to that perhaps after a bit. But um, uh, but insofar as it um, is relevant to the practice of so-called psychotherapy, um, and so I, I just want to try to make clear that Saz did believe in psychotherapy very deeply. It, it was something that, uh, as I say, he was, was very close to his heart and um, uh, he believed in good psychotherapy. Of course, he thought that what most psychotherapists do most of the time is nonsense. <laughs> but but, but, but that, that, didn't, uh, that didn't affect his, his faith in the possibility of decent, deep, good, wholesome, um, enlightening so-called psychotherapy. I mean, I mean, he he tried to coin new terms for it. I, I mean, he talked about autonomous psychotherapy in the myth of um, in the uh, the ethics of psychoanalysis, and in the myth of psychotherapy, he coined another term, a yatro logic. But I mean, that seems to me at least as bad as psychotherapy because yatro means. You know, Yatros is a doctor. So, I mean, um, <laughs> that, that looks at least as medical, or if not more medical, than the term psychotherapy. I mean, Iatro, is, is, it, it occurs in the word psychiatry, which means, yeah. you know, doctor of the soul. And so how are you improving on, psych, on the word psychotherapy by calling it a Yatro logic? So that's not one of Tom's <laughs> finer moments, I think. And he himself dropped the, dropped the idea after having introduced it. I don't think he ever pushed for that word. Um, and, and well, is he, the subtitle uh, Religion, Rhetoric, and Repression? The religion, rhetoric, and repression is the subtitle of um, the myth of psychotherapy. And and he when he talks about rhetoric, he talks about it in the style of of actually talking and speaking well, rather than some kind of salesman type thing. Is, is that true? Oh yes, nothing to do with being a salesman. It's rhetoric in the deep sense of. Um, uh, uh, I, I mean, he he said, "How can how can um, uh, how can one can how can one pretend that when two people are speaking together, they are not influencing one another?" And and rhetoric is the art of influencing uh, other people. So therefore, psychotherapy, pretty much by definition, is a form of rhetoric. Yeah, not in the form of um, fancy words to seduce the other, but sort of deep words, profound words, and and a profound way of speaking, um, which is going to be of benefit to the other. Um, and I, I mean, this is going back. I mean, this this is. What Saz calls noble rhetoric, the, as a, as opposed to the base rhetoric of um, seducing people with, with fancy words. So, so he, he saw almost all psychoanalytic theory, psycho, psychoanalytic and um, psychological terms, as 
base rhetoric. They're, they're a way of seducing and corrupting people. But that didn't mean that he didn't believe in any sort of rhetoric. He believed in the noble rhetoric of authentic psychotherapy. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think it's so hard for people to understand Sass and to, to wrap their minds around what he was trying to say? Right. Well, this brings me to, uh, you see, I've hardly mentioned, um, I've, I've been focusing so far on psychotherapy. Um, but when Tom himself did his first seminar for me, he did three seminars, and the very first one was called On Psychotherapy. But the day went on and the day went on and he scarcely mentioned psychotherapy. And he was talking all about the law and um, people being locked up and people um, being excused for crimes uh, who should be locked up or should be punished and things like this. And it must have been rather disconcerting to people who were expecting to come along and be told, um, I don't know, techniques of psychotherapy or tricks of the trade or something. And um, I mentioned to him in the lunch hour that um, people would probably be thinking that. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. But, but he said, I'm, do I'm doing the groundwork. Um, and so everything that I've been saying to you so far has scarcely been mentioning um, something which was uh, only only very um, glancingly touched on in the book, The Myth of Mental Illness. And that is what Saz called the Siamese twins of involuntary psychiatry. That's compulsory psychiatry on the one hand, and the insanity defense on the other hand, because um, a consequence or a, or a, a, um, a, a justification, a pseudo-justification of the whole concept of mental health and mental illness is um, to make, uh, to rationalize or to, to justify those two practices, that is locking up the innocent and excusing the guilty. Locking up the innocent is um, compulsory incarceration of people simply on the grounds that they are mentally ill. And um, excusing the guilty is um, making the defense that somebody who's committed a crime is not um, really guilty of it because they were not really responsible because they were mentally ill. So, so the, as says, says, these are kind of Siamese twins, they go together, uh, compulsory psychiatry and the insanity defense, um, both of them based on the myth of mental illness. Um, so, um, and this and this was really, uh, possibly I should even have put, uh, sort of put the argument, Tom's sort of fundamental argument, this way around. Well, this is the way that he came to his thinking. But I, I, I've been telling you about the way that I came to my thinking and to my understanding of him. Um, but he, he doesn't really explain in the myth of mental illness how, uh, how he came to his position. The, the way he came to his position was uh, from walks 
uh, with his with us a, a woman servant of his family who was a sort of governess, not exactly. She would take him on walks around Budapest, <clears throat> and she would point out buildings to him and sh big buildings and. He learned that there were places called prisons where people who had committed crimes were locked up. And there were places called hospitals uh, where people weren't locked up. People went there voluntarily uh, to be cured of or helped because they were ill. There was a third sort of big building, which was called a mental hospital or might even have been called a lunatic asylum. A, um, no, I, th I think by that time it was called a mental hospital because um, the, the little boy, Tom, um, Thomas, um, said to um, his, his governess, um, but the places where they, where they lock up the, the so-called crazy people, they, should, they shouldn't really be called hospitals. They, should, they too should be called prisons. So, I mean, so, so Saz was a little bit like Einstein. I mean, Einstein um, didn't know what, as a child, recognized that he didn't know what everybody else knew. Everybody else knew what space and time were, but he recognized that he didn't know. Uh, and to begin with, he thought there was something wrong with him because he, he didn't understand. But through his not understanding, he came on the theory of relativity. Um and realized that actually the people who thought they knew didn't know that they didn't know. And similarly with Tom, he, he, he was like the little boy who saw that the emperor had no clothes. He, he, he just had this single simple insight as a, as a boy that places called mental hospitals were not hospitals, but they were prisons. And out of that came all of his thinking. He, and he never changed his mind about that. He, ne he says he never had to unlearn the concept of mental illness because he had never, ever believed in the concept of mental illness. As, as soon as he encountered it, he thought there's something suspicious, fishy about it. And the more he thought about it, the more the more he thought he must be right. Um, so, so his so whole work, so go on. Did, didn't he also mention that there was a statue of Ignaz Semmelweis who said that you must wash your hands, doctors need to wash their hands, and everyone called him crazy, and he was thrown in a mental hospital and died a few days later, and wasn't, and I believe he was, Semmelweis was Hungarian as well. Yes, he, he does say that. Uh, Semmelweis was uh, was a great hero of his, and um, uh, and and he, he took that as encouragement, you know, that the doctors could be wrong, and that a, a terribly simple observation might be right. I mean, what you know, what could be simpler than noticing that doctors had dirty hands and didn't wash them before they touched women's genitalia? Yeah. And so, so Tom's thought is basically incredibly simple. Um, 
just as Einstein's was, you know, the the, ba the basic perception that, that he didn't, he he simply didn't really understand space and time, um, and and so so what I'm saying about psychotherapy, um, Tom himself might have um, not been very happy about the way even that I have introduced. Um, his thinking to you. Well, sorry. I mean, you know, you you know his thinking already. But um, if other people are going to be hearing this, um, I, I've I've given you the history of how I came to Sassy's thinking. But um, the the order that he preferred to put it in, um, both in telling his own autobiography and also in the seminar he did for me. As I said, it, the order he put, wanted to put it in was, <clears throat> first of all, <clears throat> first of all, talking about um, the conditions under which somebody gets locked up, or the and the or the yeah ba yeah that's basically it, or, or gets accused of a crime, and uh, what makes somebody guilty of a crime, uh, uh, what are the reasons for which they can um, be incarcerated what are the reasons yes what uh, how how, do, how how does it come about that they can be incarcerated even if they're not guilty and how does it come about that they can be let off and not incarcerated even if they are guilty um so these are the primary questions if you like from which um the incredibly simple basic questions uh within which all this talk about psychotherapy um, should be taking place. Uh, so that if, if, I mean, if a psychotherapist is not clear about this, then the psychotherapist may well do what many of them do. Um, and when things get tricky in the psychotherapy, then they call in a psychiatrist um, because these are the people who know when people need to be locked up because they're mentally ill. And so the whole of the psychotherapy takes place within this whole ideology of mental illness and mental health. Um, so, so really the most fundamental questions for SAS are these terribly simple questions of um, liberty and freedom and responsibility and... Um, differentiating these questions from questions of um, health and illness. He's, he's simply pointing out that there's a fundamental confusion between um, questions of health on the one hand and questions of ethics or law on the other hand. And it's true that traditionally, I, I mean, if, if you look up the word ill or the word health in an etymological dictionary, or, or any good dictionary, you'll find that um, originally they are sort of ambiguous. I mean, Shakespeare talks about the ills that flesh is heir to. Um, and, he, and he doesn't actually mean only, uh, I mean, when he says flesh, he, he doesn't actually only mean the body, I think. He means, um, uh, you know, that human beings. So ills can be, ills can be sort of um, physical illness, or they can be, um, emotional ills or moral ills or uh, 
it's 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 both. But but when people use the word um, mental health or mental illness now, um, they do not mean it in the traditional way. They mean it in a um, they mean those terms in a way which is um, hijacking or which which is parasitic on the truly um, advanced and admirable modern science of medicine. Uh, they're, they're tr it, it, it's a pretense that what Saz calls problems in living which are basically, um, ultimately, they're questions of how how should one live, how does one live. They're ethical and um, ethical and religious uh, and practical problems. They're they're not medical problems. Medical problems are, are you know the, the usual sort of things we know as medical problems: a broken leg. Uh, a fever from a virus, this sort of thing. Um, these these are being confused, and the, the whole language of um, medical ills and medical health is being applied to so-called moral, ethical, spiritual ills and health. So 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 Saz's um, so his whole um, attack is on the whole system of mental health. And when, when you say that you have the feeling that many people, even people, I think you're implying that even people who uh, sort of say that they agree with Saz, don't actually understand him. I, I certainly think this is the case. I think that both his adverse adversaries and his most of his advocates don't really understand him. Um, I mean, many, many um, so-called mental health professionals will tell you, uh, oh, yes, um, Saz, well, I haven't read it. I haven't read him, of course, but um, I, I know that he was. I, I, I know he was very important, and um, and I know that he um, he he taught people they shouldn't use the word mental illness. And so, we, so we mental health professionals, we don't talk about mental illness anymore. We we talk about um, mental disorders, or we talk about. Um, uh, we talk about mental health issues. And I mean, I, I heard Obama um, in a broadcast wondering, uh, <laughs> he got himself tied into knots because he, he found that he'd almost got himself to the point of saying mental illness and he wasn't sure how to get out of it. Because I mean, saying mental illness is a bit like saying nigger or um, something like that. I think you'll, you may have to edit that out, but I'm not going to edit <laughs> that. Um, you, you know, it's a dirty word. It, it's it's offensive, but um, th there's nothing factually wrong with it. You know, um, I mean, the word simply means black, and um, and, and similarly, pe people people behave as if um, 
uh, as if mental illness is um, not to be used, according to Zaz, because it's offensive. It's an offensive term which may upset people or make them feel stigmatized. I mean, it's it's completely stupid. And and so you find Obama saying that um, uh, mental health. He 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 found that he was about to um, describe what people in less politically correct times would have called mental illnesses. And so he got as far as the word mental, and he wasn't sure what he was going to say. So he said mental health illnesses. <laughs> and and I can prove that he said it, <clears throat> not because I've got a recording of it, but because uh, the, the speech of his was actually transcribed and published. And I saw it the other day, and there it is in black and white, mental health illnesses. <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the the whole thing is so absurd, um, and, and people. So so most of the people who say they agree with Saz uh, have got no idea what it is they're agreeing with, because the whole point of what Saz is doing is throwing out this the whole concept of mental health and mental illness together as a, a total um, mystification and mythology, primitive thinking. He's throwing, yeah. he's, he's throwing the whole lot out. He's far more revolutionary and radical than people realize. He's not just saying something politically correct and suggesting a less offensive language. Um, uh, there was a letter in the London Guardian last week. It was, it was very good. Um, it was criticizing the way people were reducing all um, the... Um, emotional, spiritual, um, social difficulties people were having because of the lo the lockdown, because of the virus, they, they were sort of blandly talking about all of them as mental health problems. Um, I, th I thought it was very good that this um, lady was criticizing that, but she 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 ruined her case by beginning it by saying that mental health professionals will be concerned that. Etc. So, so she was validating the whole concept of mental health professionals in the very first sentence, um, which sort of undermined the rest of her letter. I mean, I just don't believe in mental health professionals. I, I, I wrote a short article with the title, Why I'm Not a Health Professional. Yeah, that article that you wrote was was very good. And it's, it's on your website. So I'll link to it in the notes. Um, but Basically, you say in there, you, you know, you, you're helping people live their lives better, and that may or may not enhance their physical well-being. I mean, if someone's a wants yeah. to be an incredible rock climber, that might be a very dangerous activity, but that Absol might be how yeah. they want to live their life the most. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's um, and uh, I, I actually wrote that article. Um, in response to somebody who had attacked me um, because I had supported somebody else who was a, uh, a woman who had written something um, opposing the, uh, the registration of psychotherapists by something called the Health Professions Council. This, this was going to be happening in the first decade of the 21st century. And... Um, this had gone a long way towards being realized. Um, 
all the psychotherapy organizations like the, uh, well, I won't name them, but um, there the, are the a number of psychotherapy and psychoanalytic organizations that were falling over themselves, begging the government to register them, to, you know, to, uh, to sort of legalize them. They need, I mean, they needed no legalizing. I mean, not, not in this country. The, the, this is a wonderful country where you know, we don't have the Napoleonic Code, which tells you what you can do. We're, we're free to do what we like. We're free to do anything unless it's explicitly forbidden. And, the, and so, so all sorts of things which um, in some other countries are very difficult, like getting permission for non-medical therapists to practice, simply didn't arise here. For example, when the Freudian refugees from Vienna came here, there, there was no difficulty about um, Anna Freud or Melanie Klein practicing psychoanalysis, even though they weren't doctors, for the simple reason that it wasn't forbidden in British law. But um, on the continent, um, <coughs> it's, it's much more difficult because, uh, you know, in order to do something like that, it, it, it has to be explicitly permitted by the law before you can do it. Um, so, um, I mean, I mean, I think Freud and Anna Freud and Melanie Klein, uh, when they came here, and Ernest Jones, all the, the early psychoanalysts, they would have thought it was extremely undignified and unseemly, all, all the psychotherapists at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century um, scrambling to beg the government to um, register them and legitimate them. Horrible, very extremely um, undignified. And so there was a small minority of psychotherapists, including myself, who opposed this. And um, uh, one woman had written something opposing it. Um, and and, uh, and say, saying, saying, why should she, as a psychotherapist, be registered by the Health Professions Council? Um, you know, she said that her position was something like a chaplain in a hospital. You know, that chaplain wasn't practicing a health profession, um, and nor was she. Um, and so I wrote something um, agreeing with her and, and in, in her defense, saying, um, uh, as you saw, you know, why I'm not a health professional. Um, no, no, sorry, that's not correct. I, 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 I wrote a letter in response to her, and in it I said, ours is not a health profession. Uh, and then um, uh, somebody wrote back and accused me of splitting, splitting body from mind and working against wholeness because I was saying that psychotherapy was not a health profession. Um, I thought this was a, a weaselly sort of argument. The argument about wholeness um, is, uh, I, I find, a dishonest one because you can sort of argue almost anything from wholeness. Um, you, you can say that, uh, I mean, if, if wholeness is the sort of totality of what we do, then... Um, why, why should our physical? Why, why, why should health be the um, the thing that characterizes it any more than ethics? You know, if, if, mm. if wholeness is a sort of unity of um, medical health and of ethics, 
why should you characterize it by um, meds by, by by the medical part of it? So, so, so rather than the ethical part, and <coughs> so, so uh, it, it seemed to me simply dishonest, and so and so I, I was arguing that um, what, what I and other psychotherapists do simply is is not a health profession. I was, I was just continuing with Freud's position. Um, you know, many decades earlier, in which he had argued the case that psychoanalysis was not a medical profession. Right. Is it still legal to practice in the UK uh, without a license? Oh yes, I, I forgot. I forgot to tell you the punchline of this. It was very amusing. <coughs> so. Um, most of the psychotherapists were getting more and were rubbing their hands in glee. Any minute now, they were going to be registered and they could congratulate themselves that they were all um, uh, you know, state registered. They were, they, they were registered by the state as psychotherapists. I mean, <laughs> Freud would have thought this was a terrible cop-out, a sellout. Um, uh, <coughs> and it, it was coming very close to that. But then in the year 2010, there was an election and a new government. Uh, it was actually a coalition government, which had its own problems, um, not least through the fact that it was for the first time for you know, a long, long time. It, it was a coalition. And so the, the, they weren't bothered about what psychotherapists were doing. And so the, the, they just said that. They, they said, we've got no interest in registering psychotherapy. And that was that. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so, thank God, um, therapists are still not um, uh, state-registered. I mean, of course, there are, re there, there are good reasons, I think, why, why doctors should be, because there is an, there is an, uh, an objective science of medicine and um there are good reasons why there's the cancer act in which um it's it's forbidden to claim that you have a cure for cancer for example um but i mean in in the field of psychotherapy there there, there is no there is no equivalent science but uh, the reason they want to be registered is that they want to pretend that there is an equivalent science. They want to claim the sort of equivalent status to um, uh, the, the well-deserved status of medical doctors as serious scientists. Yeah, yeah. I think perhaps Saz would have even analogized it to uh that they wanted to you know a lot of people i think view the state as uh as a god these days and and they they view the state as as the official religion and if they can get ordained into that religion then that that will help them out in some way or they can be brought into the fold of of the mainstream religion do you think that may have something to do with it Absolutely. The, uh, I mean, when I when I say that when I say that his attitude was religious, of course his attitude was totally against theocracy, and he coined the word pharmacracy um, to mean the you know the therapeutic state. The um, the uh, yes, and and it 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 was a it it was a kind of religion in in the worst sense, a sort of fundamentalist fanatical religion 
uh, and actually <coughs> a form of terrorism because, um, I mean, um, it, it must be terrifying to get locked up as a psychiatric patient. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we, we've covered so much here, and I, I, I appreciate your time. I know it's getting late there in London, so I, I won't keep you longer than you, than you would like to stay. Um, well, it's no problem. It seemed quite short to me. So, but I mean, you, you just finish it when when you feel <laughs> when you feel you've had enough. Oh well, yeah. Uh, do you think are are how are science's ideas accepted in the UK versus the US? Do you have any sense of, of that? Oh, uh, uh, I, I'm not competent to compare them. All I can tell you is that um, my impression is that they are hardly really recognized anywhere. Um, uh, I mean, people will, well, insofar as his ideas are, um, recognized at all they're usually not attributed to him anyway they're not credited to him um, <clears throat> I mean somebody wrote a paper uh, maybe about 20 years ago with the title diagnosis is not a disease or something like that well I mean that was um, a straight plagiarism from Thomas Saz um, when I criticized the person in question I, I said but that title was that was Zazie's title and his answer was just well it's mine as well <laughs> um, no footnotes to Zaz no I don't, no no yeah and um but 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 even 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 when his ideas are plagiarized they're terribly watered down the uh, I mean, it's very, very rare to find anybody who actually advocates what he was advocating. Um, it, Do you think there'll be a time when his ideas are accepted? I mean, he he analogized it to slavery. As you know, at the time, yeah. no one thought that a, a black person be should be free, but uh, or very few people probably did, but. But the time eventually came where that happened. Do you think there will be a time when Sass's ideas are accepted as mainstream? I'm just not a prophet, and I, I, I really don't know. I mean, he um, and Esterson, I mean, Esterson was probably the closest to his thinking in this country. Esterson and I myself were... And, um, Esterson thought that his ideas might take three or four hundred years really to be accepted. Um, Saz said exactly the same thing to me. He was he was fairly pessimistic about the immediate future. I mean, he he thought that he thought that psychotherapy was was pretty much finished in the United States uh, because. Um, uh, well, first of all, uh, I don't know whether you know, but he himself stopped practicing as a psychotherapist because he was sued because a patient of his had committed suicide. 
I, I mean, quite a long time after the patient had actually left, had stopped having th analysis therapy with him. But um, uh, I think the widow of this patient nevertheless sued, says, uh, for not having prevented this suicide. Uh, and I think the insurers simply recognized, says, that it would be safer simply to settle you know, not 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 to not not to contest it in court, and that's what he did, and he he just decided the whole thing was getting so ridiculous and hopeless. He he stopped practicing psychotherapy from that time on. And I think this was sometime in his seventies, and he simply um, focused on writing his books. Uh, I mean, in a sense, uh, good came out of it because he wrote an incredible sort of flowering of books in his last decade between the year 2000 and his death, or basically between 2000 and 2010, he wrote 10 magnificent books. Uh, I mean, they're quite a big proportion of his total oeuvre. He wrote 35 books altogether, and 10 of them he wrote between the ages of 80 and 90. And, That's incredible. And yeah, and they're very succinct very well written books very how do you well think he was able to do that how, how did he i mean was, what was his process like to keep up that level of productivity i i don't quite know what the question means i mean all all, all i all i know is, i don't know what the process means i mean all i know is that he did keep up that uh, yeah. I, I, I i i i think um the, the I mean, answer, did he the answer would be that he chose. He, I think, that's what he chose to do. He he decided that um, he was free to make the best use he could of what was left to him of life, and that's what that's how he chose to make use of it, and and, and he and he achieved it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, his writing is so incredibly clear, concise. Uh, it really makes you think, and. The, the fact that he was able to do that uh, into his 80s and 90s is just incredible. Was he still emailing with you when he was in his 90s? Was, was he what in his 90s? Was he still able to use email with you when he was in his 90s? Yeah, he, 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 we carried on our email correspondence up to a few days before he died. His last email, as far as I remember... Um, I think we were exchanging jokes about um, the anti-Semitic leader of a political party in Hungary who had turned out to be Jewish or something like that. <laughs> it, uh, we, you know, a lot of, a lot of our <laughs> correspondence was really quite, you know, humorous and, um, I mean, serious, but humorous. And I think that was um, the very last thing. But... Uh, we we were, I mean, we we were talking. Uh, we we were constantly talking, working out theory, if you like, sort of theory in the in the true sense, which me, I mean, sort of ref, reflecting on practice, re reflecting on um, on this this whole world, uh, on the ethics of um, psychiatry and psychotherapy, and so on. Um, 
We we would correspond. I mean, sometimes you know, several times a day, and usually, usually um, probably several times a week. Uh, he, he he was a very very close friend, really, in in those last years. And, yeah. it, and it certainly didn't. It it didn't. There, there was no. Um, he he. I I think he he did, he did decide that. The last book that he wrote would be his last book. I think he. Uh, I think I remember him saying that that he, and and his last book was about suicide. And um, I don't know whether you know you you know that he committed suicide. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, I I think he was probably thinking that. I mean, he the last thing he wanted was to carry on and be dependent on anybody else and. Um, so uh, he, I think he was he was arranging it. He was he was planning it. Um, he was timing it, timing himself. Um, he was very disciplined. I mean, he would walk an hour a day um, to keep himself physically fit, and he carried on doing that as far as I know, pretty much up to the end. Um, and and he i think he could have gone on for some years more but he had a fall he he was always um in the last decade when i knew him he was worried about having a fall because um his bones were brittle he, and he knew that was dangerous and he objected very strongly when i booked him a hotel room with a shower and bath in it and didn't have a proper handle that he could hold on to to stop himself falling um and um uh, and then he did have a fall and he he broke his spine incredibly painfully and he refused to stay in hospital as he was recommended and he was given some pills and i, I think he took all these pills and um maybe some other pills I don't know all the details, but anyway, he he just decided he didn't want the indignity of carrying on being dependent on anybody, and and but fortunately he had achieved this magnificent body of work, which he had already decided was um, uh, was complete. At least the book, his his series of books was complete. He he did carry on writing a few articles in his last year or two. What do you think? What what was your what was your most fond memory that you have of Saz? Do you have something uh, in mind most, that you would be willing to share? The most fond memory or fun, yeah. fond, 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 fond. It's difficult to choose just one. I mean, there, there were many, many occasions when his deep warmth and affection and sort of fundamental decency and sweetness was manifest in, in a way that people didn't didn't realize just what a decent, loving sort of man he was. Um, although you, uh, some of it was, it, it was evident really if you saw him just answering questions in after he'd given a lecture or in a seminar, he was he was very respectful of every question of every questioner. He would take every question and say that's a really good question, and he would kind of relish it, and he would see what 
could come out of that question. Thank you very much. Thank you for that question. Um, fond, fond memories. Um, the first one that came to mind was I stayed with him a number of times in Manlius, uh, where he lived, near Syracuse, where he was the professor emeritus at the university. And um, the last time I stayed there, uh, we used to go out and get a sort of late breakfast every morning uh, in a place called Dave's Diner. It would be a kind of brunch. We would have two meals a day, brunch and then an evening meal at another restaurant. And Dave's Diner we were very fond of, but this last day, um, it, it happened to be full up. And so we, he drove me to another restaurant, cafe, and we went in, and it, it wasn't so nice. It didn't have the same character as Dave's Diner. So we were a little bit disappointed. And um, I don't quite know what started him on this train of thought, but possibly uh, a, a sort of association of people um, going on a journey to, to, uh, to somewhere where you would be fed and then having a not very good experience when you got there. Anyway, for whatever reason, um, I suddenly realized that he was asking me, uh, he said, what's it all about? You know, what, what, what do you think it's all about? What, what, does, what does Judaism think it's all about? Because he had been interested in learning about um, the Jewish religion from me, because he really had a very conventional uh, sort of assimilated Jew, quasi-Christian sort of knowledge, superficial knowledge and um, and prejudices, in fact, uh, you know, about Judaism. And um, he said, so, so you know, what, what's, what's the Jewish attitude on what it's all about? Um, and he explained why he was asking. Uh, he, he said that, you know, when you think about some of the things that go on in the universe, you know, it could lead to a very bleak picture of things. And the example he gave was of animals which crossed the desert in Africa, I think. They would, they would walk, they would track hundreds of miles, I think he said, to get to a watering hole. And when they got there, they were eaten by the predators that had been patiently waiting for them to come. <laughs> and so his question was, you know, what is this all about? What's that all for? And, uh, and, in, and specifically, what is the Jewish take on that? So I sort of mumbled something about, um, I, I said, well, I suppose um, the traditional Jewish idea is that God made human beings in God's image um, with the idea that they should collaborate with him in the um, sort of creation and improvement of the world. And, and the way that they were supposed to do that was by leading a decent life and loving their neighbors and loving strangers. 
And he sort of looked up and he looked around and then the most enchanting smile came onto his face and he said, it's been quite a successful experiment, don't you think? And hmm. um, and the, the people he was looking at, I had been feeling very turned off by. The, I mean, they, they were very obese, uh, almost like a parody of sort of gross, obese Americans stuffing themselves and their families with um, what we call chips over here. Um, I don't think it means the same as chips in the States. You, you know, bit, bit, French bit, fries. French fries. Yeah, yeah, French fries. French fries and um, whipped cream and <laughs> so on. <laughs> you know, pretty disgusting. <laughs> they're, they're all sort of stuffing themselves. And... Uh, but Tom looked around and, you know, and I, I had been saying this about um, what it was all about was leading a decent life and um, loving your neighbors and loving strangers. And so well, uh, I had I had been looking, you know, actually with some sort of hostility at these, um, I thought, rather sort of vulgar strangers. I wasn't loving them. But he looked around in this loving way. Um, and and he he obviously saw that he sort of seemed to be seeing to the heart of them and seeing that beyond all this superficial stuffing themselves they were basically decent people and that you know they they would have loved their neighbours they would have opened the door to a stranger he, he could he somehow I I could just see him from his smile thinking that and and he confirmed it by saying it's it's been quite a successful experiment don't you think. So the, his original sort of gloom when he was asking about these creatures had turned into a, a sort of vision that um, that the world was basically good. <laughs> you know, it was a bit like when God created the world and he, you know, he looked at everything and he saw it was good. It, it it was rather it struck me rather like that. Tom was thinking basically the world is a good place and people are basically good at heart. You know, um, and that that was. This was the last day I saw him. Um, a, a few hours later, I flew back to England and I never saw him again. So that was a very happy um, last memory or almost <laughs> last memory. Yeah, yeah. Well, I sure appreciate you sharing that with me. And I, I would have loved to meet him, but uh, I didn't learn about Sass until after he died. But uh, well, I'm, I'm sorry you didn't. Sorry you didn't. But he, but he, he was, he was what we call a, a mensch. He, he was, a, he was a real, he was a real human being. With, with, you know, with his faults. I mean, and and his books contain mistakes, and sloppinesses, and you know, simple errors. You know, his books are not perfect, but they're they're pretty good. Well, Anthony, I sure appreciate you taking the time tonight to talk with me and come on this call, and I. I'd be more than happy to have you back anytime to talk about sauce and his ideas. Um, but we're coming up on two hours, so I think we'll, we'll end it here and I'll, sure. I'll let you know when this comes out and I I'll put in some show notes and, and release it to you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. You're always welcome to come back for more if you, if you want to. Excellent. Well, take care. Have Thank a great you. night. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.